Welcome to Rock Writ. Something we don't talk about enough on this show is our superb theme music. And the song you just heard a snippet of is called Eternal Hair by the San Diego supergroup Octagrape. And the visionary singer-songwriter for Octagrape is none other than our old friend Glenn Galaxy Galloway. Glenn's name may not be familiar, but there's honestly no one I would rather listen to talk about music. His knowledge of sub-underground sounds is untouchable. He has an amazing ear and he processes music in a way that few can, and he's able to convey those impressions with a unique stream-of-consciousness sensibility. In the early 90s, Glenn published a fanzine called Zero Gravity, and he wrote reviews in Your Flesh and Tim Ellison's Rock Mag. And he wrote perceptibly about all kinds of things, underground rock, free jazz, jungle, hip-hop, noise. Glenn's first band was Truman's Water. And some of you whippersnappers may be too young to appreciate what a big deal Truman's were in the early 90s, especially in the UK. But they are massive. British DJ John Peel was a huge champion of their Captain Beefheart-inspired noisiness. And Glenn left Truman's in 93 to start the experimental Christian group Soul Junk. And that Christian faith is a huge part of Glenn's story and integral to Soul Junk's music. He has a joyful and lively faith that flows from a vital relationship with God. And that faith does mark him out as a bit of an outlier in underground music. He doesn't really fit any of the common categories. He's definitely not a culture warrior or a jaded religious progressive or a Catholic worker. He is just a guy who unapologetically loves Jesus and wants to make him known. It's simple as that. After Soul Junk came Octagrape, and more recently the trio Sumo Trabin, and several more explicitly worship-based music projects. Glenn and I spoke back in 2000 for my old fanzine. It was a joy catching up with the man. This is definitely one of those interviews where I ask very few questions and stay out of the way, so please enjoy our chat with Glenn Galaxy Galloway on Rock Writ. I don't know if you're like me, there's certain bands that I love who I associate with music writers who got me into them who formed my taste. Like I can't listen to the band X without thinking a bit about Richard Meltzer or yeah. like the Flesh Eaters without thinking about Byron Coley or the band God is my co-pilot without thinking about you and some of the reviews you wrote about them in your flesh. Do you have that kind of experience? Do you have that relationship with certain writers or magazines that formed your taste? Absolutely. You know, um, I, I think when I was, when I was finding the music that meant that ended up, defining my taste and, and meant the most to me. I was, I was in a, just probably the most unlikely place. Um, it, it all pretty much happened while I was going to the Naval Academy, which is kind of like another life to me because it, it, it was like the only four years I didn't live in San Diego. And I probably am the only person in history to get kicked out of the Naval Academy on graduation day. <laughs> so I, I had a complete run complete four-year run at the Naval Academy in Maryland, you know, nobody at the school shared my taste. You know, I, I had friends that I'd like, we'd drive up to New York City together to watch Sonic Youth or something, you know, but um, yeah, I was just, I was completely participating in this culture by proxy, you know, like I couldn't go, like for the first couple of years, I couldn't get to any of the, of the music I was reading to, reading about. And so it all kind of like existed in these fanzines and like you said, force exposure and, you know, your flesh and this, this kind of, and I would just read about these things and just picture, oh man, if only if, if, if I could have been at that show, like that would have been like, you know, um, and then I would, I would just save up all my money and buy records. And we had this little record store in Annapolis. I could walk to it and it was, it, it was called Reptilian. It's called Reptilian Records, you know, and I can remember, you know, going down there and 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 I was like, you know, I, I just started like at the Naval Academy and it was like I was I was listening to the Velvet Underground and I subscribed to like, I think it was like the Village Voice back then, you know, 
And so that's all I had. And and the only reason I was listening to Velvet Underground was because REM covered them, you know. Yeah. Like prior to prior to uh, like high school had just brought me as far as REM. And then, you know, it's just like, oh, they covered the Velvet Underground. And the, the Velvet Underground just opened up a whole world to me at that point. So here I was, freshman at the Naval Academy, you know, and you're the scum of the earth when you're a freshman <laughs> at the Naval Academy. And so I was just, I would go down to the basement at the Naval Academy and um, they had all the Velvet Underground records for some reason. What? And I would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That makes no yeah, sense. Yeah, because they're... There's a little radio station down there called WFMU. No, <laughs> not WFMU. <laughs> not the WFMU. Not WFMU. What was the Naval Academy station? I can't even remember. You know, it's little little uh, college broadcast thing, and mm-hmm. they just had all the Velvet Underground records on vinyl. And so it was a you know that that the Velvets were the gateway drug, and then you know of course it was like as I was binging on all the Velvets records that Daydream Nation came out and uh, it's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And, and I had never heard Sonic Youth previous to that. And uh, so then of course, then I was diving into that and finding forced exposure and just kind of read, I was like, Oh, so my exposure to punk rock really was, was all through those writings, you know, I was just like, who, what is punk rock? Well, punk rock is the germs, you know? Yeah. So, like, you know, every, I mean, my exposure to punk rock in, uh, in high school was like GBH and fear and faction. It was like all the kids in my school that were listening to punk in the, in the mid eighties were, it was like, what would that be? Like third wave, fourth wave, you know, it was just like, yeah. How fast can you play? How ridiculous can it, you know? And they would bring me into the band because I, I learned like Iron Maiden solos and Ozzy Osbourne solos. So I was like the designated shredder, yeah, you know. But I knew none of the music that they were listening to, like like I was this recovering metalhead, you know. <laughs> so yeah, so like my, okay, the Germs are punk to me, you know. Black Flag is punk, like any you know Flesh Eaters, and then and then I had the most skewed. You know, just it was just basically destroyed music was punk to me, you know, and then then, yeah, so I would say, yes, writing affected me way more in the early days than than the actual experience of the music, because it was just like, you know, I couldn't get out to see it. So the long answer, but yes. And, you know, it's really interesting because because my son played Jude played with Saul Junk ever since he was 11. No, since he was nine. So he played with Soul Junk from like when he was nine until he was, oh man. I'm, you know, at a certain point, it was just like, this has been fun, dad. <laughs> I, 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 you know, he calls me, he calls me Poppy. He's like, this has been fun, Poppy, but like, I want to play in my own bands and, you know, but yeah, he, I think he was playing a, with us ever since he was nine. And I remember like showing him, um, the dinosaur junior bug record and just just he loved he absolutely loved it you know yeah. and so i'd hear him like playing along with you're living all over me and like I'd be like this is insane my 10 year old is like slaying these songs you know and then so is really it's uh who is he into um is anthony is it fontana yeah yeah anthony fontana is like is the is like 
the critic that he pays oh, attention to. Oh, the internet guy? The uh, yes. Yes. bald dude? Looks like yeah. me, but kind of jacked and bigger. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Totally. Like Anthony Fontana came to town and like Jude went to see. Oh, I, wow. I'm like, well, what's what's he is is like a, a comedy thing? Like what's, you know, like he's like, yeah, he's just kind of like doing his thing and talking about music and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to hear the differences now. And and um, it's you don't have to be so earnest about it. You can be so like that's what I've seen is that you can be pretty detached about it because it's all kind of brought to you, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, yeah, I'm kind of into this, kind of into this, kind of into this. I was into that for a while, you know, whereas we it, it was so funny in the late 80s, you know, you just. Like there were these, there was these records that you would write, a, that you would read about that were just like grail records, you know, and you just, you were never going to see them. Yeah. And you, you probably, and if you couldn't see them, you were never going to hear them, you know, um, maybe, maybe somebody would play them on like a, a radio show or something, but it was just like, I, I remember making these huge lists, you know, like when I would. Yamaska I or Thurston or somebody would be interviewed and I just make these lists like I have to have these records you know and I knew I was never going to have the majority of the records that were on my lists you know but I just thought well unless I write them down I have no chance of ever you know picking them up Uh, because I didn't I didn't have any money you know you could obviously like spend 200 bucks to get some of this stuff but whereas now it's just like the minute you hear about something you're just like oh you know within 10, 15 minutes, you can be listening to it. And there's no, there's no kind of buildup. There's no, if no. you can't grow into this larger than life, like amazing must have kind of holy grail thing, like you're saying. Yes. Um, did you have experiences like that? I did. And I'm trying to, as you're saying this, I'm trying to remember what some of those holy grail things were. Like Hackamore Brick was a band that I sort of heard, heard about in like the late 90s, early 2000s before they got properly released. And I would just be like, oh, wow, they sound like amazing. Uh, just the descriptions, you know, would just tantalize me. And yeah, and then later you hear it, and it's great. But yeah, yeah, I, I if without that, without that buildup, I wonder how my relationship would have been with them. I probably would have liked the music just as much, but I wouldn't have that association with the writing and saying like, oh, Chris Digliano wrote these amazing things. Tim Ellis wrote these amazing things about yes, um, yes, just enriches and enlarges the experience somehow. No, I, I I completely agree. And then there were some times where, okay, so so say you had this record on your list, and then you and then you um you found it finally, mm-hmm. and you know let's say it cost you know let's say it cost twenty five bucks back then. Twenty five bucks was just like way too much for a record. But let's say that's what it cost for a seven inch, and you bought it, you got it home, and you played it. And if your first reaction was like, I don't love this, then part of you was like, what's wrong with me? Like, what am I not getting? Yeah. You know what I mean? You try. You would try really hard. Like I, okay, here's a, here's a funny experience I had when I was uh, 16. I remember, um, you know, Rolling Stone would be sitting around everywhere. And I would, I would always read through like, what are the records, you you know, when they would have like the hundred best records of all, all time. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to pay attention to like, that was as deep as I could go at that point was Rolling Stone's hundred best records. I remember seeing Captain Beefheart Trout Mask on that. 
Wow. Did I tell you this story already? No, no, no. This is you gotta you gotta tell. So I'm 16. I see I see Trout Mouse replica, replica, and like you know, I'm listening to like REM is a stretch for me at this point. Like I'm a metalhead who's like trying to like stretch across the aisle and listen to music that doesn't have guitar solos. You know, uh-huh. this is as far as I've gone, and <laughs> and like I read that Trout Mouse replica is like one of the hundred best record records of all time and it sounds insane and so i remember going into the record store in it's called lose records and encinitas on the coast and i saw this record and i was like i'm gonna buy it i'm gonna buy this this one of the hundred best records of all time you know and i and i remember i i i bought it and i brought it home and i just had that experience of like i don't like this at all yeah i just there's and I played it over and over, <laughs> but the the craziest thing was as I bought, like before I got it home, as I bought it, like all the like record store gods, all the people in the, you know, that a 16 year old would look up to, yeah. like, these are the people that I would bring my like Depeche Mode records up to the, to the front and they would, and I just get that like scornful, like <laughs> whatever, you know? Or, or like whatever record I was buying at the time that was just not good enough for them, you know? And I remember bringing Beefheart to the front and it was like some guy at the register was like, check it out, that kid's buying the Beefheart record. <laughs> like, kid's buying Trout Mask. And all of a sudden I, I got, you know, from just being like stupid kid to like props, you know, like the entire record store Illuminati was just like, you're in, like, well done kid, you know? And uh, so I took it home and I listened to it and, and like, listened to it and listened to it and listened to it. And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't find my way to liking anything about it. And I actually brought it back the next day and asked for my money. (laughs) And it was like all the, all the props that I had gotten, you know, little did I know in like, you know, in, in four years, that would be one of my, my favorite records of all time, you know, but I just, yeah. I wasn't there. I wasn't there yet. So. I don't think any 16. That's much respect, man, for trying. That's, <laughs> for trying. That's I ambitious. Just, I I think most people who get into B-Part have that experience with Trout Mask Replica or, or any other album, really. It took um, Shiny Beast probably, and maybe like Strictly Personal for me to get into. I think Trout Mask was the first I got. And it took yep. some of these other albums to get into it. But I still like the slicker Beefheart stuff more, to be honest. Incredible. So yeah. Dark at the Radar Station. And yeah. 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 I mean, I think I think Trout Mask is genius. And, it, and you know what? Mm-hmm. My kid, Jude, got into it in high school. I remember him <laughs> and, and his, uh, his friend on a road trip with his friend's parents and they were playing trap mask the entire time just torturing trevor's parents with it (laughs) just like (laughs) and so like jude yeah jude was jude and trevor were able to get trap mask in high school so you know that's well look look who he's got for his dad that's that's amazing but maybe not that surprising yeah right yeah no yeah, he was, he was, uh, we would constantly, you know, talk and we still do to this day. We'll, we'll talk music. And, uh, there's this one time I walked into his room. This is probably about six years ago and he was playing somebody. And I was just like, who is that? 
And he's just like, I'm not going to tell you. I'm like, what? And I quick walked over to his computer and he blacked out the screen. He's just like, I'm not telling you. I'm like, what do you, what is this? You know, like how much amazing music have I turned you on to? Yeah. And you're not going to tell me who that band was. He's like, no, I'm not going to tell you. And he didn't give me any reason why. And I was like, Shh. and I'm like, so of course, if I hear something that I don't know, I'm, go- I'm going to like, I was just like, I am going to find out who that is, you know? Yeah. And he just stonewalled me for the next like two months, you know? And then finally there's this one day and he just like, he he plays it for me again. He's like, he told me who it was and it was, it was pond, pond. you know, like pond. And it's, it's essentially not like the nineties pond, but like the, um, the band from, I believe it's Perth and basically Kevin Parker apprehended that band to become his touring band for the early Tame Impala records. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, Jude and I would listen to the early Tame Impala together because I'd, and then I'd play him like Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Pink Floyd and be like, do you, do you see, like, do you see the connection here? This is, you know, and play him like 60 psych and kind of show him. And, and I was like, so why didn't you ever tell me who that band was? Like, it's like, this is rad, but like, and, and he's just like, I just wanted like one band that I knew that you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fair enough. That's that's, that's, okay. that's so unique. Not a lot of kids would have that kind of story. Yeah. About their dad. That's yeah. amazing. And he just wanted to have his own kind of secret, just for me, band. Yeah. And he didn't want, for two months, he didn't want to explain it. He was just like, no, I just like, this is, this is one thing I know that my dad doesn't, you know, so. That's wild. No. Yeah. You did a fanzine as well. It's called Zero it, Gravity. Yes. I don't yes, know much about it. Can you tell us about it? Yes. So um, Zero Gravity, I started, this is like right as I got kicked out of the Naval Academy. And so, you know, it was kind of like there was that year, this was 91, late 91. I just all of a sudden just just landed back at home with nothing, like absolutely nothing. Like my brother Keith, who's five years younger than me, sold me his like beat up um, Dotson for 250 bucks. And that's what I drove. And I was like, courtesy clerk at Vaughn's groceries, you know? So, so I went from almost graduating from the Naval Academy to just like nothing, you know? And um, on top of that, the Naval Academy was just like, well, you didn't graduate. So you're, you're, we're putting you in the, in the Navy as enlisted guy, you know? I was like, hold up, hold up. You know, I'm so close to like having my degree. And they're like, well, you have one year to get your degree. And if you don't get your degree within a year, and and by the way, I was all done with, with my degree at the Naval Academy, but because I didn't have a passing grade in conduct, they didn't give it to me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, I, I essentially had to like find probably one of the most expensive schools in San Diego, which is... USD. And they're like, sure, come, come spend a fifth, a fifth year with us, you know, <laughs> we'll San Diego really, State, yeah. yes, UCSD, San Diego State, like the more affordable schools were like, no, nah, you, you know, you, you got a six month waiting list or a two year wait, you know, whatever for a transfer. And so, so here I was at USD, like taking a fifth year of college that I didn't really need. I was just there because 
I had to get credits, you know, to, yeah. to like not get put in the Navy. <laughs> and so, yeah, immediately. So, so here I was in these classes, I was in classes with freshmen and I was just like, I already know this stuff. And so I would just like the entire time I was sitting in class, I would just be reading fanzines and I would be writing lyrics to Truman's. By that time I had like started playing with Truman's water and um yeah it was just like all i was doing while i was in class was like was you know absorbing all this material and finally it's just i was like i need to i need to write a fanzine like I've, i'm listening to a lot of i'm i'm listening to a, enough of this stuff that i have opinions you know and so i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna start a a fanzine and yeah i mean zero gravity was kind of it was just kind of where I was living at this point. You know, I had been like in this, in this pressurized military environment. And all of a sudden it was just like, you know, and it's all expectation and it's all, you know, deadlines and, and, and all of a sudden here was just like, well, that didn't work out. And now I'm just trying to like take freshman classes for a year to like get a degree. Like it was, and I'm playing in a band and, this is wonderful. <laughs> so zero gravity was kind of where I was living, you know, it's just like, this is great. I think at, I can remember at the time I was like thinking fillers was just blowing my mind. I remember I had their worm by Leonard um, cassette tape mm -hmm. and I had, I think Lovelyville had just come out and it was just like, I remember those records just like seem seeming just like it just was like this is incredible you know and i somehow got a phone number of i think it was hugh from thinking fillers and i remember calling him this is while i was still in annapolis you know yeah and and like he just picked up the phone he's just like how'd you how'd you get my number like, <laughs> is this again and I'm like, yeah, I'm at the Naval Academy. And he's like, really? You know, <laughs> he's just fascinated. What's this kid from the Naval Academy calling across country, you know? And, and, and I just remember like picking his brain for what are you guys listening to? And, you know, so yeah, zero gravity was like probably about eight months after that, after I'd been kicked out and, you know, landed in San Diego and was just like, all I cared about was, was buying records, you know? And I actually had the freedom to do it. While you're at the Naval Academy, I was constantly reading about music and listening to music. But at the same time, you know, it was just like just ridiculous course load. And you, you know what I mean? And here yeah. all of a sudden I was, I was free to just like all that all that time that I'd spent like studying me mechanical engineering and naval science and like all this stuff. It was just like I was just free to like read force exposure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, zero gravity was kind of, kind of me just going like, well, I, I have opinions about this record. I, I could write about it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you also had like a particular way of expressing yourself, at least in the reviews I read later that you wrote for your flesh magazine, you had this kind of unique stream of consciousness style where you're sometimes I don't know what you were talking about. And it was amazing. I loved it. Yeah. Is that yeah. something that was at play in zero gravity as well? hundred percent. Yeah, yep. it was it. And it was, um, okay. I had, a, I had a very surreal relationship with, with, uh, reading and writing 
in that um, I remember as a kid, people always be like, wow, you, you can write, you can write, you know? And I was like, it's in here. I put it here, you know? And they're like, yeah, yeah, but not everybody can do that. You know, I was like, okay. So when I was in high school, I remember, you know, having to read the books that the, the school had you read. I think I remember like crime and punishment being, being kind of a turning point for me hmm. and, and just thinking like, wow, I'm really into this book, you know? And then I remember somehow getting into Dostoevsky. So this is again, like as a 16 year old, you know, I just started reading like as a 16 year old, I just started reading these like 900, like brothers Karamazov, you know, and I'd stay up all night. And somehow my parents, like my parents were, were super like by the book, pretty strict. You didn't stay up all night for anything, but if you're reading Dostoevsky, like, sure, you're going to yeah. stay up all night, for, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, I remember I just like, I went headlong into Dostoevsky and then it was just like, I, I just started gravitating towards the stream of consciousness way of, of expressing. And I got into Faulkner. I got into um, uh, Salinger. I got into T.S. Eliot. Like when I found T.S. Eliot, I thought this guy is just like, this is how, this is how I think. Yeah. You know, it's just this random like hodgepodge and you're supposed to, you know, I don't half of what he's saying. I, I don't like consciously register, but it feels good. And then I'm going to follow out every one of his references, you know, yeah. and I just love that that sort of expression where it's just like this is an experience more than a, a literal infusion of data, you know, and so I guess that's without and then. I just kind of dropped off a cliff in terms of that whole period of my life. You know, I, I realized that I was like in a good place in terms of mental health, you, you know, I mean, it was just like perfect day for a banana fish by Salinger. It was just like, I read it and it made total sense. And I also realized like, I'm suicidally depressed, you know, I'm yeah. not, I'm not like as an 18 year old, I'm not doing well. And, um, then I remember kind of getting swept off the Naval Academy and it's like, who has time to read 800 page books anymore? Who has time to be depressed? You're just constantly running around trying to like not get screamed at, you know? Yeah. I just, I had this three year period of my life where I was just like, forget God. I only believed in God because, you know, that was the environment I grew up in, which was strange because I had a very deep relationship with God as a kid. You grew up in like a reformed church, Glenn, is that right? I like, did. I did. That's reformed. Yeah. Uh, CRC? CRC. Respect. That's, yeah. Yeah. So that was my background, you know, and it was just like, man, I was a straight laced high school kid besides being like a closet metalhead, you know? <laughs> so I wasn't like, I wasn't partying. I wasn't like, like none of it. But I, you know, like I remember being like a freshman sitting in my closet at home, like learning every solo off Ozzy Osbourne's Diary of a Madman or, yeah. you know, like Maiden Records or, or Van Halen or like. So I was like this, this very conflicted, you know, young guy. Eclectic. You know? eclectic. Yeah, very, very eclectic. Meanwhile, by the time I was 16, I had read the Bible six times cover to cover. I remember being incredibly moved by it as a kid but i just 
I, I'm trying to, re- I'm trying to remember exactly what the crisis was, but it was just like, yeah, my late teens were not until I got to the Naval Academy, my late teens were not a happy time, you know, always felt like a fish out of water, even though I shouldn't have, like I had great community, great family, great friend groups, but I just always, and then I just like, I just got into more and more depressing literature and music and staying up all night, like reading and listening to stuff. So yeah. So anyways, long story short, whisked off the Naval Academy, came home my, my first um, Christmas back from the Naval Academy, sat my parents down and told them, thank you for raising me the way you did. I'm an atheist, you know, and just completely like, you know, went, went off the other direction as, as far as you possibly could while being at like a military place where you get drug tested every two, three months. Yeah. The most damage I could possibly do at that point would, was just alcohol. <laughs> like, <laughs> you drank quite a bit, I think in those days. eh? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we talked about that last. Yeah. That was, that was like, yeah, three years of, of, uh, and that's, I think that's how I dealt with the sort of you know, the self-destructive stuff that I had going on prior to that, I just turned into alcoholism, you know, (laughs) it was no longer was I like, was I thinking suicidally and no longer was I like in these like existential conflict, whatever. But yeah, I was just kind of living it out as self-destructively as I could with, with while not getting kicked out of the Naval Academy. So it was like within there were, there were, uh, you know, how do you say it? What are the, what are the, uh, uh, on the highway? So you don't go off the cliff. Oh, guardrail, like guardrails. (laughs) The wordsmith forgot guardrails. (laughs) And so I quit reading. I quit reading during this time. It was just like, all I was reading was like music stuff. No more books, right? Books didn't go anywhere good. That just made me depressed. And so it was just like, like, Drinking a lot, listening to a lot of music, you know, working hard at school. But then when I came out the other end and then here I was, zero gravity, long answer to your question. It was like, I think all that like stream of consciousness sort of like development I had I had found in, in my reading was like finding its way out. It's just like, yeah, I want to just express this like just stream of consciousness. So. How did that play out in, uh, you mentioned Truman's Water. That was your first band, Glenn, that you were involved in? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I tried to form some bands at the Naval Academy, but it never went, that never went anywhere, you know. (laughs) Uh, We could never play out, really. So we would, you know, I have recordings of pre-Truman's Water, you know. And um, what happened there at the end of the Naval Academy was I, I found my way to alternate tunings, you know. And that, that's really what gave at least my my side of Truman's Water gave it that that sound was I I found a, an open E tuning that I've like stuck with ever since. So I think that was probably like 89 or 90 that I developed that tuning and I, I still play it to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the lyrics of Truman's Water was just like that was that was the most fun. I remember writing those lyrics and just like like I said, it was just this whole era of just blow everything up in this kind of ridiculous way, you know? And we were just, I remember I was just inhaling Beefheart and the whole prankster side of, of Sonic Youth, you know? Cause Sonic Youth had this dark, intense 
brooding side, but then they also totally. just had this like, you know, the the Chaconi Youth record and like have a sense of humor, yeah. For a bunch yeah, of like yeah, 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 snobs yeah. from New York, they yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. That was the early Truman stuff. It was just like it was just this kind of like stream of conscious snide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the song titles, like the album titles, were yeah, just out there. Yeah. Were you shocked that like John Peel really loved you guys and like the, the was... fame that you guys achieved for a band that sounded the way you did? And being as young as you guys were, how uh, how you guys caught on so fast? Yeah, it was it was really weird, and it was fun. Did we talk about this last interview where the John Peel phone call? No, no, no. You got to so tell on, me. It's on YouTube. You can actually like, you can actually YouTube uh, John Peel calls Truman's Water. Okay. I'll spoil it for you. Essentially, what happens is um, John Peel calls the house that all uh, Truman's Water lived at in san diego and kevin who was at that time is the bass player he picked up the phone and it just so happened that kirk his brother the guitarist the other guitarist his girlfriend tawny picked up the phone at the same time so here kevin and kevin and tawny pick up the phone together and they just they don't happen to hear john peel say hello is glenn there and they don't hear that. They're like, this is random. We just picked up the phone at the same time and now we're talking to each other. Yeah. And and John Peel's a good Brit. And so he just sits there, you know, <laughs> he just like lets them talk. And um <laughs> and Kevin and Tony were just like just talking about nothing, you know. And Kevin, Kevin like has the most like amazing, just surreal sense of humor. So he was just making up whatever and so they go on, they're just going on talking about nothing for two minutes. And then they pause for a second. And then John Peel says, he's, once again, he says, hello, hello, is Glenn there? And uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden Kevin is like, uh, oh, uh, no, Glenn's not here right now. But, you know, this is Kevin. And and he's like, oh, Kevin, I'm I'm calling about the band Truman's Water, you know, and, and Kevin just. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm in Truman's Water, you know, and they have this conversation. That's amazing. <laughs> and then John's just like, I think your your record's brilliant, you know, I'm in playing it, you know, we had no idea, we had no idea he was, and, and so it's, yeah, it slowly got back to us, you know, pre-internet, like, oh, you're, John Peel's been playing entire record sides on the air, you know, all of Northern Europe is is inhaling this little record you've made 300 copies of, you know. That's remarkable, man. Yeah. Were you guys on Homestead at that time? This was pre-Homestead, so it was self-released. And it was one of those things where, like, half the band, I remember, we wrote the record in three weeks, you know? Like, literally wrote the record in three weeks, and I just, I was like, we have to record it. And I remember, you know, everybody just kind of like, we just, we're, we're not ready. Like, we barely know these songs. I'm like, oh, we know these songs. Like, we know these songs that we need to. Like, this is like, Loose Ends is what this is going to be about, you know? And yeah. And so we did, like, uh, Kevin and Kirk were just like the two brothers. They're just like, okay, let's do it, you know? And then Eli, Eli, like, was drumming. He was a new drummer for us. And he just, it's like, okay, you know? And so, and then, you know, once it was done, I was like, okay, so this is what you do. You master it. 
played it, you know, and I was just, I, I was bound and determined. And then we made all the hand, like all the covers were essentially just, uh, so all we got back from the record plant was, uh, was the vinyl in like white sleeves. And then we went to thrift stores and we would find the thrift stores that were selling, you know, old records as cheap as possible. And then we just like pull all the records out of them and then spray paint over the record sleeves. And then, you know, hand, then we had an eight and a half by 11 picture that we would hand color with crayons. So every record, every record company, ever every record cover of those original 300 was different. So the way Homestead came into the picture was, as soon as this started getting Peel started playing it, then Homestead was like several record companies started like, hey, do you get do you guys want to like release this record? Like actually release, you know? And Homestead was just like they they just jumped in from the distribution end, and they're they're like, we'll take we'll take five hundred of these. Yeah, and we're like, well, we have to color hand color <laughs> five hundred of these, so we would like have coloring parties you know we'd have um have all our friends over and we'd like sit at the table and hand color these these pictures and then that's wild you no know, and then while we're doing that like one person of course would be making a masterpiece and and working on one picture the entire night yeah and so at a certain point we're like we got to make 500 of these like here's how it works you color for a minute and then the timer goes off and then you pass it to the right. And then, you know, <laughs> more and Paul, certain, Van Gogh, eh? yes, yes. It's just like at a certain point you call it done. And, and, uh, but yeah, there was just no way we were going to like fulfill that 500 order. And so they were calling us all the time. Like, so are you done with those 500? And we're like, ah, oh, we, we got like 113, like, ah, we really need 500, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, and then a week later they called and they're like, you know, we need 1500. And I was like, there's just, you got to tap out. There's no, like, I could be under the illusion of getting 500 done. 1500 was like, forget it, you know? Yeah. And so they're like, look, could we just, could we just press this up? You know, like pick your favorite, pick a favorite cover and then mask. And I was like, ah, kind of, ruins the concept but yeah I mean, we can't cut hand color you know and so it was like between them and cargo records here in san diego that all our friend bands were like all the other bands in san diego were on cargo so i was really torn but at the same time you know so many of my favorite records from the late 80s were like on homestead and i was just yeah. like oh man okay let's do it and so we 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 signed up with them and but yeah, it was Peel that that generated this like little low key bidding war. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's incredible. And did you guys send a copy to Peel? Is that how it got into his hands? No, it wasn't even us. We didn't even we didn't even like really really know about his thing. You know, I mean, I'd heard the Peel session. I'd grown up with the Peel sessions, but I didn't understand like, oh, there's there's a guy, and he just yeah. like he's this tastemaker. And so no, I think it was. Um, I think we. You know, at that point, it was just like when you have 300 copies of a, a record that are hand color, colored, people would like Revolver would be like, yeah, we'll we'll take 12. Yeah. You know, so you send 12 off to Revolver and like and, and I'm like, well, who else would you recommend? And they're like, well, I, I don't know. You might send some up to, you know, 
charnel house or like, he, like, like people would just kind of refer us around. Like he, they might take, and you, so you're just hoping to move like eight or 15 or like, you know, yeah. chip away at the 300. And I think it was rough trade. Somebody finally said, why don't you send some to rough trade? And so we did, I think we sent like 25 records to rough trade or something. And they sent one of them to John Peel. Nice. Yeah. So that was, that was the, the breadcrumb trail. Providential, man. Providential. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so your next band was Soul Junk. And Soul Junk story is kind of inseparable from your conversion story or your reconversion. Mm-hmm. Kind of when the gospel kind of got a hold of you in the early 90s. Can you talk about that a bit, Glenn? Yeah, absolutely. So I came back to faith still at the Naval Academy. So it was in my last, the beginning of my last year of the Naval Academy. And I had a, I had a wild, I, I think we probably talked about it in the first interview, but yeah, I was alone in a hotel room. This is my senior year at the Naval Academy. And I was waiting to just meet some friends and just go get, get wasted in DC, you know? And yeah, I was just alone in this hotel room and like had this crazy experience. And, and I just, I like God spoke to me and was just like, I'm here. And I just, it freaked me out because I couldn't deny what I was experiencing. And I just remember, I remember just saying like, I can't go back to what I had. And I remember just hearing like, you, you, you don't have to, there's more. It was the craziest experience. You know, I, I had no, you know, all my friends were just partying like me that, and so it was just me. And I just, I was just like, well, this is like 1990, the end of 1990. And I remember I was like, well, I'm going to try reading the Bible again. And um, this is after three years of like, like living as an atheist, telling everyone, like everyone, like I let everyone know clearly, like not into the God thing, like, like absolutely the other direction. And I remember just, just starting to open. And I was like, well, I'll try to read the Bible again. I don't, I don't know if this is going to work, you know, but I'm going to try it. And just had these experiences where I would open the Bible and I'd start reading and it would, it was like, I could feel the room filling with light. It was just like, oh, and then I couldn't put it down. I'd read for hours, you know, and, and as I was getting kicked out of the Naval Academy, like all my former misdeeds had caught up with me, you know, like as, as much as I was getting, getting straightened out on the inside, like I was still dealing with this, this avalanche of, of, you know, wild oats that I had sown. So I was on restriction and I would just sit there in my room and read for hours, you know, and I just remember just like, I would have to go in and, and uh, talk to the higher ups at the Naval Academy in order to not get kicked out. They were, they were kicking me out. And so I was going in and I was having to like kind of plead my case. I just realized like if they ask me any number of eight questions, I can't tell the truth or they will kick me out, you know? And so I remember like having this, talk with God of like, I know I'm supposed to tell the truth, but you do understand that I'm going to get kicked out. And I know you don't want me to get kicked out. So you will understand when I, when I, you know, massage facts a little bit. And I just remember clearly hearing like, no, I, I don't understand that, you know? And, um, and I just remember just going like, well, 
if I tell the truth, I'm out. And I just, I knew at that point, I'm like, if I really, if I'm really experiencing this relationship, then I need to, I need to walk this out. And so I would go into these hearings, you know, with the like commanders and the admirals and everybody and go in going like, I'm only going to tell the truth, even if I get kicked out, you know? And so it, it happened and uh, I did get kicked out. I was probably in so deep that even if I had tried, you know, and then there's an honor code, there's that part of it too. So if they catch you lying, you're out just for that. But yeah, it was cool. It was just like when I, when I bounced out and I came back to San Diego, it was just like, I had this deep conversation going on with God at all, all, all the time, you know? And it, and it was like, people would talk about prayer and they would talk and I wouldn't describe myself as like, cause I, I pictured like people who prayed, it's just like, you wake up at four in the morning and you just like travail, you know? And I, I wasn't that, but I just, I constantly had this conversation with God going on, you know, I would constantly be in the word and I would just like, I hear your voice. I feel your presence, you know? And so it just, so it was crazy through Truman's this was going on and nobody else in the band shared that. And I, I couldn't find anybody. There was no one who shared my faith that had anywhere near the musical taste I had, you know? And I remember people would say like, well, is this a Christian band? I'd be like, well, I'm the only believer and I'm writing nonsense stream of consciousness lyrics. So no, probably not, you know, no. <laughs> like it's like, it's not, it's not anti-Christian or anything. Cause I'm writing the lyrics, you know, but like, no, I'm, you know, I'm no way like trying to, and then, and then I just, you know, I was, I was on tour with Truman's and we were at top flight. And I mean, it was, it was going off. Like it was just, everything was, all the people I looked up to were starting to have us like open for them. And it was just like, and I just remember a drive from Louisville to DC. I just started reading the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke finished it in one day. Like in over the course of this eight hour drive, I finished the entire thing. And then we played in DC and it was nuts. We played with unwound and like, yeah, Ian came out to the show and I was like, hey, man, I love your band. I'm like, this is like, yes, you know, and it was like this. Next day, we drive down to Chapel Hill and we're going to play with Polvo. Oh, wow. So, you know, like, this is awesome. These are all my favorite bands and we're like playing with them. And so on the drive from D.C. down to Chapel Hill, I was just like, well, Luke wrote Acts. So I'm going to just read all of Acts today. I read all of Luke yesterday mm -hmm. and I'm going to read all of Acts now. Luckily, the other guys in the band were taking the driving shifts those days, you know. <laughs> but I just remember at the end of reading through Acts, you know, just thinking in two days, like Luke and Acts. And I just remember at the end of that, I was like, well, this is this is the life I want, you know. So it was this weird um, juxtaposition of like I was living my musical dream but here I, I read this is like, this is, this is, I, I just felt like this is available to me. Like I can live this. Like I really felt like I was walking with Jesus as I was reading those books, you know? Yeah. And so it was a couple of days later that every time I would open my, my Bible, it would be second Corinthians six. And I, the verse would just jump out at me. Like literally I would open my Bible and the verse would jump out, come out from among them and be separate. 
first two days I was just like, well, that's, that's interesting. It opened up there and I would start reading somewhere else. And the third day it happened. I was just like, okay, God, I'm not really supposed to leave this band. Cause you know, this is everything I've ever dreamt of, you know? It was kind of the same thing as like, you know, you understand I have to lie to my commanding officers, you know, like I just, I have this ability to, to ask a question and really listen and really, even when it's not the answer I want, you know, people will say like, people talk about, you know, God is your imaginary friend or whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Cause he asks things that you would never imagine on your own, you know, (laughs) like you would never dream up. Yeah. so yeah, it was just like three days later. I remember telling the guys in Truman's, I'm like, I'm I'm leaving after this tour. And I'm going to start a band that I know you don't believe in God, but he's going to have me start a new band and it's going to be about him, you know. And they were like, Oh, could you be in both bands? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I just I have to leave, you know. Yeah. And, and so then I would try and write, I was like, okay, God, you want me to write songs for you? And I would try and write lyrics. I'm like, I have no idea how to write God songs. Like this is, you know, going from writing Truman's water lyrics to like writing something that was like for God, representing God. I didn't know how we were supposed to do this. I'm like, you have to show me. And then, then I just realized this is like, all I have to do is just like, when I am in the word of God, it jumps off the page, it's life. And so then I just would start singing it verbatim, you know? if a line needed an extra syllable, I'd just sing, yeah, or hey, or like, you know, (laughs) but it's pretty much like the Bible verbatim with like a yeah and a hey and an oh yeah, (laughs) like, you know, so that's, that's the majority of at least early soul, John. Just using inspired words from the Bible, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the early soul junk song titles were the, I think the first album, it was just the verse titles, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty liberating to just be like, great. Well, this is the word of God, the authoritative word of God. I I can't do any better. So I may as well just use these as my lyrics. And you don't have to think of a clever way to get around that kind of challenge. Yeah. And it, and it, and it like, if I don't get an hour a day, just, just hanging out with God in the word, I just feel depleted. I feel like I didn't eat, you know? Yeah. And it's my experience of it is very visceral. It's very like w- when you do that over time, you know, it's like somebody will say somebody, I'm be like that. So, somebody will say something about God and represent it from the Bible. And I'm like, that doesn't really jive. And then I'll just be like, oh, it's because, yeah, that verse is that, you know, but I, do, I didn't come about it by like, you know, a bookish like theological study or anything. Like I didn't start with like, these are the things that I'm supposed to believe. So I will, you know, find words to confirm that. It's just like, I just was like, when I, when I open this up, I got it right in front of me. Like when I open this up, I feel you I experience you. It's just like when Jesus sat with uh, his disciples after he was resurrected and they didn't know it was him, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then, and then, he he starts explaining to them because they they're just like we thought this was the messiah but he died so all our hopes are dashed and then he starts saying well don't you even understand like this isn't the end of of the line this is this is actually the beginning of it. it's the fulfillment of everything that was it's like all of this brought to life 
And later they said, when, when he vanished from their sight, they said, didn't our hearts burn mm -hmm. inside of us as he opened the word? And so that's my experience, like on a daily basis, like I don't have this heady intellectual relationship with the word of God. I have this like I have this like it's it's a high, it's the highlight of my day. You know, I have this deeply moving like God is speaking to me. I feel you. Yeah, I feel it right now as I'm even talking about it. I feel his presence, you know. So when I realized like, oh, all I'm going to do is is take these words that are that are the, the core of my experience. Like they could, they're, they're, you know, I exist by the word of God. So like the word of God is in my DNA. And so I have such a resonance on so many levels that all I have to do is sing this. Yeah. And it's, it's just the, it's the deepest representation of who I am. You know, I am an echo of the word of God. And so as I sing the word of God, you know, I am, I'm representing what comprises me the best I could possibly do it. So <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And so my favorite Soul Junk albums are those ones where it's just verbatim, like the Psalms album you did, uh, 1959. Yeah. 1942, which which has some heavy metal soloing going on there, actually. As well. so that's probably bringing <laughs> some of your youth. That's right. I love those. And then the playful hip hop albums as well, too, that take like scripture and scriptural ideas and just yeah, mash it with hip hop. Yes, 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 yes. You were kind of all over the place stylistically too. So I guess I just have an incredibly short attention span. And <laughs> my 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 favorite experiences are musical experiences, are environments where I feel like what is happening? I remember the first time I heard and the first time I heard Coltrane's Ascension. Not an easy listening album. No, but it was just like I was completely disoriented. Because I think it was like that experience with, with Beefheart, right? When I was 16 and I had to go and trade the record back in because I yeah. couldn't, I couldn't bridge it. I couldn't make the leap and go like, there's something in here that, that, that is beyond me, but I'm, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to hold that tension, you know? Yeah. And, and so then later when that would, when I found the way to like make it through the like, and, and enjoy like the disoriented feel like there's something there's a there's something going on there's a musical intelligence going on here that I don't get but I love it and then I began to like you know um I remember when I got the boredom's um soul soul discharge record I had no idea what any of this music was and I, I couldn't picture the people who were doing it I just you, you know it's just like it's another planet and so all my favorite musical experiences are that, whether they be live or on record, I just love the feeling of like, you're speaking a language I don't understand, but it's a beautiful language, you know? I think what was happening when I was starting Soul Junk, so this is the early 90s, was I start, when, I, when my mind recognizes patterns, then I, then I lose interest. When things start to be codified, then it's it just like, I loved your last record. There are no surprises on this one. And so I think I know what the next one's going to be like. Yeah, this early 90s thing of like anything goes, every album was this, this more elaborate prank. We just were like, we're trying to like, everybody's just trying to like surprise each other. 
And then all of a sudden, like, it felt to me like as we're hitting 94, 95, it, it was more like, you know, people were getting signed to majors and it was, you know, you got to kind of make a go of it, you know, like, you know, like this next record has to sell. And, you know, I, I wasn't doing it. We didn't get signed. It. Soljik wasn't signed to a major, but I could see people doing it for real, you know, and really digging in. And, and so I just started to lose interest. You know, I just was just like, it's just a, a more properly recorded version of the same ideas that you had going three years ago. So I'm not interested. And so I, I remember just being like 94, 95, just like sitting in traffic in my, like my decimated Chevy Chevette, 79 Chevy Chevette. And just, which is on the cover of uh, a soul junk release, the third one. And it had like a busted out back window. And I just remember sitting in traffic and, and this is like back in the days when, when, you know, people had like, subwoofers and and you're like what is that i have no idea this sound that feels like you know like a monster is about to stomp on me and and i don't know where it's coming from because it's lower end you know and but it's fascinating you know like i was i was listening to borbit omegas and sun city girls and you know but to me this was just like what is this noise you know this is like noise music that is popular you know and so then I remember getting into uh, how did I how did I even hear drum and bass? Somehow I heard drum and bass, and I was just like, "Oh, this is just harness noise." It's all like the lower end, like synths, just sounded like feedback to me. It just yeah. sounded like somebody has found a way to turn feedback into like pop. And I and I would tell people, I think I think drum and bass is pop music. And they're like, "No, it's tweaker music." You know, like nobody listens to this stuff. Yeah. Except for like tweakers who go stand in front of huge speakers, you know, and I'm like, no, no, it's pop. I don't do anything halfway. So I had to like know everything about drum and bass and and people like Square Square Pusher and Aphex Twin and Fotec. And yeah, I gravitated towards the weirder stuff. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then through that, I found hip hop. You know, I would I remember being at the record store and and just being like, I love this. I love this uh, drum and bass record. And they're like, oh yeah, that's the one with the Redman sample. I'm like, Redman? Like, yeah. And, and I'm like, well, who's on the flip side? And they're like, oh, that's like Jizza from Wu-Tang. I'm like, Wu-Tang? That's how I found my way back to hip hop, you know? I had listened to Public Enemy at the Naval Academy, but during the Truman's days and noise, I just, I was like, hip hop, nah, not interested. But yeah, when I found my way back to hip hop and then I'm like, oh, Wu-Tang, like, this is ridiculous. This is noise music too. And Soul Junk was always supposed to be, Soul Junk was supposed to be like condensed. I, even the first Soul Junk record I thought of as pop music, you know, because mm. Truman's was doing like Aroma of G Gina Arnold was this eight minute opus, you know, and I, I knew like that will never get played on the radio, you know, so put it as the first song on the record, you know, just let people know, like we're not, like this, there's no there's no pandering no, here <laughs> yeah where soul junk i'm like let's make short songs i'm gonna write i'm gonna condense my ideas and you know i was inspired by very primal rock and roll at that time like 50s and 60s just like a couple instruments and so that's where so 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 yeah like like i thought well drum and bass and hip-hop have found a way underground hip-hop have found a way to make noise into pop so mm -hmm. 
I just wove it into Soul Junk then. I was like, okay. Were you trying to confound people as well too, just by hopping around these different genres and no. trying different things? No, no. And, and I had no idea it would throw audiences so much, you know. Um, I just thought it's fun to me. It, and I guess like at that age, I was really under the illusion that that everybody that if people listen to enough music, they would have the same taste as me. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember like my younger brothers would come and tell me like, oh, you know, my favorite band is, I, f- I forget, you know, Pearl Jam. And, and I would try and talk them out of it. Like, oh, yeah, Pearl Jam, yeah. You, what you really want to listen to. And then I like, you know, and they're like, yeah, but I, I like the Pearl Jam record, you know? And <laughs> it's like, come on, honey, nudge him a bit to the left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like, yeah, like baby step, ridic- ridiculously far to the left, you know. And, yeah. and it was just like, but, it, but yeah, I was under the illusion that, like, like, you know, everybody listens to music the way I do. And so I just, I figured, like, so all my friends who like enjoyed the super like atonal, obliterated sound in the red early soul junker they're gonna like the soul the the hip-hop stuff too and and a lot of them did but then a lot of them were like yeah no i I don't like that stuff at all you know (laughs) i don't like the the electronic stuff you know like like the drum and bass and we went all we went all in you know and it was like and, and the other funny thing was i remember showing some of our our like some of that music and it didn't translate like it did like the the drum and bass proper drum and bass DJs are like, that's not really it, you know, like it's cool, but it's not really it. And I remember I had a a friend in San Diego who actually was part of soul junk for a while. And he ran an underground uh, hip hop store here in San Diego. And I, and I remember, you know, working with him on the, on some of the early beats and like I'd work all day and I come and show it to him and he'd be like, that's amazing. You know, I'd say like, well, do you see it as like this kind of stuff? And he's like, well, it's not like anything I listen to, you know, in other words, it's not proper hip hop, but it's great, you know? <laughs> and then, and then I remember like, Oh man, there was this minute in time where like raucous was getting started. You know, mm-hmm. you remember raucous records or yeah. Um, yeah, it was like the late nineties. Like, Oh, that was insane. Like underground hip hop stuff going. And like soul junk actually got to play uh, a showcase and i think like mf doom was on it or something what yeah 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 yeah. like oh i was a crazy like mf doom fan back then you know and like cam d was mf doom saying before mf doom like i was way into all that stuff and and anticon we got to play with anticon and uh i think you guys fit in well with that stuff we did we thought so too yeah and like those dudes were all just like all right you know, like, like there was no, like, there was no, like, oh man, we gotta, we gotta, Let's we gotta do this, do this again. again. You know, there was none of that. It was just kind of like, and I remember we'd reach out to, uh, we'd reach out to people to do remixes, you know, we're like, Hey, love your stuff, you know, and we'd get back and they'd be like, yeah, that'd be 9,000 bucks for a remix. And you're like, what? Like, like, no, like, I thought you just would want to remix our, our jam, you know, like, no. And, and, you know, I, I think I just expected like the underground rock world. It was just like, it was all about deconstructing covering each other's tunes. And like, you know what I mean? It was just like, 
that reciprocity was kind of there, but maybe not outside of that. Split singles, culture, you know? Right? Yeah. And and hip hop seems so much that, but, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sure that if I had like done my time in like a recognized crew, you know what I mean? And kind of like gone in that way, but I had listened to all the records. I, I, knew which I love like I'm like I'm into what you're into like let's work together and they're like I don't know you you know like <laughs> <laughs> tell me about some of the music you've been up to in the last few years there's Octagrape who provide us with our amazing theme music for the podcast thank you thank yes. you so much for that and also Suma can you pronounce this for Suma Traban Sumatraban Sumatraban yeah it'd be like the Autobahn in Sumatra oh. yes Yes, of course. But you know, so, so many people have said Sum Traben or Suma. Yeah, it looks I think like you're that. being nice, but I'll take it. No, I'm. I'm not. Like we have a, we have a recording of of a, the band that played after us saying like, "Thank you for Suma Traben for <laughs> opening." Yeah, yeah. So Octagrape was incredible. Octagrape again. You know, I just was like, I I had all these ideas. I think. I think uh, records like 1960, Soul Junk 1960 really made me miss Truman's Water, you know? And I, I, was ne- I was never under the illusion that like Soul Junk was going to become that sort of band, mm-hmm. you know? Because um, Truman's Water just like, we just lived in this surreal, you know, we j- just ate, slept and breathed weird music all together and played it, like, like I said, three, four hours a day. It was the only way you could invent that sort of like logic that only made sense within its own bubble, you know? But then I I was just like, I don't know. I think it was around 2010, 2011. I just started playing riffs that sounded like they were from Truman's, you know? And um, I had already tried to make records with Truman's Water since leaving the band. Like I was part of Fragments of a Lucky Break, which is like a late 90s Truman's record. But it, it was fun. It was really great. But it was just not the same as when we lived together. You know, we would get together for a week and rehearse these songs and then record them. And it was great. But it was just like, I just started realizing like that. I don't think there's a way to top those those early 90s records unless we we actually live together, you know. So, yeah, I think I think uh, Octagrape kind of came out of that. Like, I want to make really loud music again. Like, I want to make stuff. I want these riffs that that just sound like deranged dinosaurs, and you know. And then at the same time, I was really into T Rex. <laughs> Speaking of dinosaurs, so I had this weird like, you know, like if Mark Boland was to be making this apocalyptic noise music, what would it sound like? You know, so that's where Octagrape kind of came out of. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it was like the early singles are pretty poppy. You know, the early singles are pretty catchy. Heavy but catchy, man. Yeah, no. Yeah. Like Truman's is, Truman's is great, but catchy, I don't, not always catchy. Some of the riffs stick, not all of them stick. No. Octagrape no. is catchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just had much more of like a, T-Rex was just a nice like guiding light, you know, like T-Rex noise music. And so I think the rest of the band was just like, this is great. You know, um, we play these like sort of catchy songs and then just like flail about on and off the stage and people are way into it. And, and then I was just like slowly, but surely over the course of the, from late 2012 to 2016, that's when Jason moved out of state. 
no longer was T-Rex like any sort of North Star. It was like no wave is the North Star. I love no wave when I was in Truman's and I, I love the concept of no wave even more. And I actually love the music more, you know? And, and so of course, no New York is like the center of that. And then you just find out all these other, like, and then I remember being on tour with uh, Octagrape in Western mass and like going by Byron Coley's uh, record store. Oh yeah. Uh, feeding tube. Feeding tube. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was nuts, you know, to go in there and just kind of browse. It was just like, there's no way I can afford any, <laughs> any amount of these, but I want all of it, you know? Yeah. And he was so gracious. I mean, we were on tour and he just sent us home with way more than we paid for it, you know? But I remember asking him, I was just like, so you've written like books on no way. Like I, I want to, like, I can't get enough. I got to hear like, you know, it's so funny, like hearing him be like, well, it only really existed for six months, you know? It was just like, it just really was just like there and gone. And it was all these super crazy dysfunctional people, you know, some of them like, like total geniuses and others of them just completely like barely functioning human beings, you know, that just. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It it seems, it seems like a weird little scene that made some amazing incidental kind of like music, like they're artists first, I guess, a lot of these. Yeah, absolutely. not musicians by any stretch. These are like art projects for them to be like, well, let's get some instruments, but concept the conceptual thing is kind of the main thing. Yeah. It's kind of like element 109 on the periodic table, you know? Yeah. It's just like it existed in a lab for like, you know, a nanosecond and you can yeah. call it. But yeah, no, and, and I don't think anybody else in the band like shared that, shared that love. <laughs> <laughs> so well, yeah. Away you- from Boland to, to No Wave. Yeah, 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 yeah. So as you hear like the progression of the uh the octagrape, you know, material, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. And we finally like the the Aura Obelisk record, we got to record half of it with Chris Woodhouse up in Sacramento. I knew him, of course, like he had done a ton of uh Ty Siegel stuff and like uh OCs, but his band was called Mayors with two Y's. They're they're records are just brilliant you know it's just like because we go we go on tour all the time Octagrippy on tour and we just have all our songs on shuffle and whenever a mayor's song would come on everybody in the band would be like what is this because it, it's just like it's equal parts completely destroyed but the the low end is intact hmm. you know like most like degraded music is just like there's no end there's no low end it's just all you know but the mayor's thing would just be like this, this full spectrum pummel. After a while, I was like, man, I want to record with this guy, you know? And everybody's like, really? Like, you have a recording studio. You want to go to Sacramento? I was like, yes, I want to record with Chris Woodhouse. So yeah. that was super, that was a nice, bizarre, because he just got all the reference points, you know? I'm like, I want to make a, I want to make a record like the pop groups, why? Are you familiar with that record? Yeah, and you guys do an amazing cover of uh, We Are Time. We Are Time, yes, of course. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 You nail it. Thank you. So, so, and Chris got it, you know? He was just like, oh, I love that. And it was like, I think Dennis Blackbeard, what's his last name? Like, dub producer had done that record, you know? So it's like this art noise band being channeled by like a proper like Jamaican 
dub producer, you know, like seventies dub producer. And Chris loved that idea of like, let's, let's make this like fractured art music that somehow is still like pummeling rock music, you know? So, you know, we were listening to the final mixes and we're like, it, it's good, but it just, it sounds too intact, you know? And I just was like, how did the, how'd you get the sound you got on Mayer's records? And he just got this funny look and he's like, oh, you want, you want to destroy it. And I was like, well, do what you did on the mayor's records, you know, and he had this certain signal chain. And the minute he put it through that, it was just like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and our drummer was horrified, you know, our drummer was like, you just ruined our record. And I'm like, no, no, no. Now our record sounds amazing. He's like, you can't even hear all the parts anymore. I'm like, yes. Now it sounds like it's from another planet. This is what I need, you know, so. Um, but then at the end of 2016, Jason Began, who was, you know, the two of us were kind of ended up being like the, the core members. We were in from almost the beginning and then we would co-write. And so when he moved out of state, it felt a little weird. Like I would have been like the only consistent member of Octagrape. And I'd already done that with Soul Junk, you know, like. What is Marky Smith saying? You know, if it's your if it's your grandma on, on the bongos and and Marky Smith, it's the Paul, it's the fall. You know, <laughs> I didn't want to do that with Octagrape. You know, the last drummer for Octagrape was was this guy named Tyler. He had just jumped in like the last six months of Octagrape, and he was amazing. And and so it was weird here. Here he was like this dream drummer, and Jason was moving out of state, and I was like, ah this band shouldn't be falling apart right now, but it is. And um, so then we started Sumatra Bond. I was able to make the full like no wave leap at that point because my friend Preston Swernoff, I need to, I need to like make the connection. Preston was in a band on John Whitson's label, the shine, the shining path and uh, Preston and his friend Ilya, and I, and I realized like this song was recorded in, you know, like 15 miles from my house. And then I realized like, oh, press, this guy Preston lives, still lives in San Diego. And so um, I reached out to him and basically my, the first thing I, it was like online messenger or Facebook messenger or something. And I was like, Hey, are you in San Diego? And he's like, yeah. And we kind of knew each other from bands and everything. And I was like, what do you think of no wave? <laughs> he's like, I, paper, love it. Right? Yeah. I just went straight to like, and he's like, I love it. You know? And so we started, we got together and started geeking out on our favorite no wave. And I was like, okay, so this new band, like this is, this is kind of what I want to be at the heart of it. So Sumatra bond was like an extension of Octagrave, but, Preston wasn't supposed to play guitar. He ended up playing guitar on almost everything because he was such a weird, fun guitar player and it sounded great. Mm. But my vision for the band originally was that he would be like DNA keyboard or something like that, you know? And and he came in and he played like the ace tone, like late sixties ace tone keyboard. Looks like it says acetone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that band was, that, that band was, we did three records together. The first two got released. The second, the last one is like, I think the second record was like, we put so much into it. And then our label friends were like, are you going to 
live on the road touring it probably not we're like no and they're like yeah kind of can't put it out you know mm-hmm. so um luau records in in the uk put it out and that was that was amazing but yeah the third record is just like recorded but not mixed you know are you guys still a going concern not really not really i had this amazing spiritual experience down at an orphanage in uh in mexico i was playing simple worship music for bunch bunch of kids at an orphanage it was early in the morning and i remember looking up in the middle of one of these songs not even one of my songs it was just like a song that they would all know and there was this like six-year-old kid and he was just absolutely like transfixed you know it was this dark room you know several hundred kids but i could focus on this one kid and as it was happening i just thought this is this is what I want. This is what I want to be part of. You know, some of these kids like stories. They're seven years old, and you can't even talk about the first two years of their lives because it's like unimaginable what they what they've been through. It just felt like if I can be a part of an experience like this for this this little life that deserves access to, you know. I was just like, I just felt like I want to be, I, I want to focus on this. You know, I've been pursuing that. I, I came home and I was just like, I, I told Preston and Tyler, I was just like, I think I have to press pause on, on uh, Sumatra Bond right now. You know, I think I need to, cause you know, I would, I had turned, turned 50 and I, I just had a sense of like, I'm not going to live forever, you know? And um, I love noise rock and I love being part of making these records, but this was an experience I, I had never sensed before. And I just thought, I have to pursue this, you know? And those guys were crazy gracious to me because it was like, we had put, I mean, we were rehearsing two, three times a week. You know, we recorded three records in like two years and we had a lot into it. But I remember Preston like the next day coming by and he's like, well, I wanted to be mad at you, but you want to make music for orphans. So what can I say? (laughs) I guess my focus now is just, is just like, I, when I play live, I want everyone to, to just experience what it feels like to encounter God, because I know what that feels like. That's what music has become for me. It's just like, if I can encounter the living God, and music is an integral part of that, then that's what my music should be about, you know, is sharing that, is sharing that presence, sharing that encounter. It's tough because it's not an environment that necessarily people say like, go crazy, make weird things, like take it off the rails, you know, like, you know, but it's okay. It's, it's, uh, I think I'm just, putting all the like hope for musical transcendence that I've ever had in my musical writing and my musical like improv. And, you know, I'm putting all of that into like, I am encountering the eternal God, the creator, you know? And so the, in, the infinite is encountering the finite and the, and out of the finite is coming something infinite 
it can be a three chord song and people can like have this transcendent experience in it. I see it as this incredible folk music, I guess it would be. But then you bring people into it and they're like, I don't know, man, sounds like Coldplay. <laughs> <laughs> some of it's, remind me the name of it because I've, I've heard some of it. it, it yeah. Is, it's cleaner, it's different it's, than, uh, is it Thank You? Is that what it's called? Well, but the album thank, is you, thank You. You're right. There's an album called Thank You. And um, I put that out on Daniel Smith's album label. And this was like, and you're right. And FMU played it. FMU like called it the record of the day. So as clean as it was, it was yeah. still, yeah. And so, yeah, no, that would have been, that. I think I probably recorded that like 2004, 2005, and it probably came out more like 2008. Okay. Um, so that, those were songs that I was, was playing like, like 50, 60, 70, 80 times in church. You know, and then I would break, then I'd bring them into the studio myself and do sort of like these like lo-fi weird beat versions of them. Yeah. You know, and people in the church would be like, that's not how it sounds like in church. I'm like, yeah, but that's how it is in my head. You know, the stuff I've been doing since I've, I've written one album and I'm, I've recorded it. And now I'm like writing this, writing the second. And yeah, it's, it's just, I'm once again in that crazy, like, how do you negotiate this? You know, how do, how do I negotiate a head that is just exploding with all these like ridiculous musical ideas into a context where, you know, in the live, in a live worship setting, the heart of it is when you start playing, if people immediately sense this is our song, then it's this communal experience and everybody joins in and everybody just like travels together. If there's any sense of, oh, you're playing your song, mm -hmm. then, then they'll like, okay, and they'll let you do it. And they'll, okay, that's good. And they'll appreciate it, you know, but then there's not that like, there's, there's not that joining together. I mean, you've, you've experienced this kind of stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. If somebody's up there and it's just like a performance, it's not so much bringing you into the presence of God. It's it's a bit more. It's a concert, so it's it's quite yeah. a thing. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a journey over the past three years. So that's been kind of my like okay, what if if I'm going to bring people in the presence of God, then then I need to come in and first of all be so saturated in that presence that they feel it right away, and then like when the minute I start singing. I want them to feel like this is our song. Even if I wrote it, I want them to feel like, like, yes, this is, this is something I can sing from my heart too, you know? So mm -hmm. man, the most bizarre arc from what I was doing with Octagrape and Sumatraban, you know, what, four years ago, you know, not that long ago. Yeah. It's a putting aside maybe of some of your own sort of aesthetic preferences and your muse and, and, yeah, doing something to the glory of God and, and for the good of others. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think you're, you, you're on to something, but it's so funny because my wife will say, like, she'll listen to the first record and she'll just be like, it's great. I really love those songs. And then she'll say, on the second record, though, I think, I think you can do something nobody else can do. Mm -hmm. And I think you should do that. 
you doing what only you can do is not going to necessarily alienate people, you know? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly how to, how to walk that line other than just to do it song by song and night by night when I lead, you know, and, but I, I do have that sense of like, it's going to get fun. It's really hard coming from a record critic background because they're, I don't want there to be like, this is not a, cere a cerebral exercise and it's not an aesthetic exercise necessarily, you know? Yeah. And so the minute I start thinking like, oh, I want to make a worship record that is like in between, like the, you, you like have these touchstones of records that like shape me musically. It's just, why, you know? <laughs> like, why? Yeah, why? Like a Christian, ver and it, that's been like the history, history of Christian music, you know, like let's do a Christian version of Kiss. Let's do a Christian, you know, and it's just like, nobody wants that, you know? It's like, so... Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just have to like continue writing these songs and continue just making them in the in this strange environment. But you know, continue like I just continually bring it back to when I have the opportunity to lead worship live because there's an experience in the room where you're like, okay, yeah, no, this there's something to this song. And and then and then being able to document that. I, I have I have a ways to go, you know. I don't think this first album is by any means like the end destination, you know. It's just a document of the first group of songs that I wrote. And this is at your band camp? Is it Glen Galaxy Bandcamp? Is that so no, it's actually um it's actually called Parallel Stereo. And I imagine that anybody who listens to this uh it's it's very hi-fi. <laughs> You know, it's like all the barriers to entry of soul junk. Like I actually sing in tune. Hey. I actually tune, I tune my guitar. You know, it's like all these. <laughs> no strange you know. tunings? No, the strange tunings are still there. I gave up on being able to uh, jump back and forth between strange tunings and uh, standard tuning. Yeah. Because the minute I play standard tuning once, my brain is like, oh, good. We can go back to what we learned when we were 13. I'm like, no, you can't. Like, that was just a, that was a, a momentary thing. Like this new tuning is the tuning. And so now it's like, somebody will hand me a, hand me a standard tune guitar. Be like, look, I just got this amazing, you know, whatever, 1966 and it's standard tune. And I'll like hold it and like, wow. And they'll be like, like, like play it. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Thank you to Glenn for being so generous with his time. Check out any of his musical projects. They've certainly been a blessing on my life. And thank you for listening. Please get in touch anytime. You can DM us on Twitter at RockRitPod. Take good care, and we will see you next time.